to the panel on RNZ National, Sue Kedgley and David Farrar with me this afternoon. Now, a report of a crash on State Highway 1 north of Kaitai near Kaimomo Road do follow directions of emergency services and delays in that area are likely. Also, be prepared for a few roadwork closure in Auckland's motorways overnight, including State Highway 16 in both directions between Hobsonville Road and Brigham uh, Creek Road. Is that how you say it? Brigham or Brian? Anyway, Brigham Creek Road from 9pm tonight. It's been hailed as an historic moment. The countries at the COP27 Climate Summit have agreed to set up a loss and damages fund to help poorer countries being battered by climate disasters. Although, as Hajit Singh from the Climate Action Network said, quoting, for someone who has seen their home disappear in the floods in Pakistan, a solar panel or a seawall isn't much use. But what about the actual tasks of limiting global warming? Let's find out. With us is Dr Adrian Macy, adjunct professor at the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute at Victoria University. Dr Macy chaired the Kyoto negotiations. Uh, Dr Macy, kia ora. Oh, good afternoon, Wallace. Good afternoon. So on that final point, uh, uh, the actual task at hand of limiting global warming, what were the key points you took out of this COP27? Well, I'd be scratching to find any key points, unfortunately. <laughs> I think uh, the the big success, of course, was this uh, decision on loss and damage. And I, I agree with the UN Sector General. It's It's been a useful, I think, a political signal to those countries that are suffering the most from climate change, um, although its practical application, I think, is yet to be seen. And I remain pretty sceptical about that. And just one other point on that discussion, which is related to your, to your question, actually. Unfortunately, what, what this topic did was it focused most of the negotiating attention uh, on it and we reverted to the old uh, north-south, rich-poor, develop, developing divides, right. which is quite a sterile. It's, it's constantly these cops revert to that mode. And uh, what it does, it, it really uh, delays core business, which, as you said, it's actually getting or limiting global warming to the temperature goals under the Paris Agreement. And, and that's the, the essence of that is actually the making the energy transition uh, especially in, in the 20 uh, biggest emitting countries, making an energy transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Now, on that one, uh, we almost, we risk going backwards because there was an attempt at the conference to wind back some of the language that um, some of the agreements that have been reached uh, back in the Paris Agreement. So um, they managed to wind it back, I think, to the status quo. But, um, I mean, there's an overall outcome of sending 35,000 people to spend over two weeks in Egypt. Um, hmm. I think you have to be a bit of an optimist to see that as good. <laughs> now, just to stay there, Dr. Macy, I'm just jumping into some breaking news right now because uh, uh, you'll want people will want to know the Prime Minister confirms a celebration event to mark the Black Ferns World Cup win with an event at Parliament Great. on Tuesday, December the 13th. So Tuesday, December the 13th, uh, a Black Ferns World Cup um, uh, celebration event there. Um, just on that, Dr. Macy, you really pull no punches with this. I mean, you chaired the Kyoto negotiations. You called COP summits ridiculously overhyped. That's pretty. It's a pretty strong thing to say. I mean, what value do they serve, if any? Well, we, a 
COP is necessary if you have any sort of a treaty. You need a regular meeting of parties. But I think the, the big achievements of recent COPs have been the Paris Agreement. That was a huge achievement. And that's really set some good guidance for people. I mean, and by people, I mean countries, I mean businesses, I mean cities, and everyone involved in climate change should actually start taking action. And I think it's a, become a complete misnomer, which is always... It's always expectations always raised in, in the in the weeks preceding the cops as if you know it's all worse than we thought. Now's the time to be even get even more ambitious. Last chance to mm. save the planet, and you constantly, you constantly, you, you, those expectations are never met, and, and there's a real loss of confidence. I think of people in the whole process. I think what the attention should be given to is actually getting stuck in and doing and implementing the Paris Agreement rather than um, arguing and, and coming up with these grand targets or not. Um, so that's, I think, the main point, okay. is it's been quite a distraction um, from that core business. Let's bring up panel, Adrian, uh, and they can jump in with some questions or comments. Sue yeah. Kedgley. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, interesting uh, thoughts there. But, I mean, there were some gains. Uh, Brazil's new president, Lulu, he committed to stop burning the Amazon, which has uh, got to be progress. I think 150 countries signed up to a methane pledge to cut, etc. We had this climate compensation fund. Um, but you're right, no mention of phasing out fossil fuels. Instead, they're talking of phasing down unabated coal, whatever that means. But I guess the question I have is how do you shift global opinion? How, how do you get a mm. sort of global consensus on the need for action outside of these often excruciatingly painful global talk fests? And isn't one of the real problems with this one was that you had the oil and gas lobbyists out in force working with uh, Saudi Arabia and other oil-rich countries there to dilute uh, the commitment, stonewall, procrastinate. So how do you stop things like the oil and gas um, lobbyists from sort of undermining a conference like that? That was like mentioned, that? Adrian, yes, because someone said it looked more like a fossil fuel trade show. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you have different actors really pursuing their own self-interest. But as I said, what you had, that the Paris Agreement was, was a huge step forward and that made it very clear with its targets and with what you needed to do to meet those targets, that you actually have to get to net zero, and that does that does require phasing out fossil fuels. I think the point I just make that there is there is a lot of stuff going on, and attitudes have changed hugely. If you look at business around the world or many countries, and mm. just one positive thing for me that came out of the COP, some of these things that are positive, like the the, the methane pledge was mentioned, they're not actually they're not actually COP decisions. They're things that people tend to want to announce in and around a COP. Right. There's a whole lot of these things back in Glasgow. Now, one that came out of this COP that has had much attention, but I think it's right on the button, and that is this um, US government and private sector initiative coming out of some of the funding that, that, that President Biden has got called an Energy Transition Accelerator. And that, what's that, what that is trying to do is to help developing countries speed up their transition off fossil fuels, the energy system, electricity. Now that, to my mind, is, is, is okay. right on the core business. And right. it's interesting that it's come out, but it wasn't a COP. It wasn't a COP decision that got that. It was autonomous decisions. Oh, that is interesting. More, so some of those uh, so of that. some of those issues coming in from the sideline are even uh, as prescient as COP27. David Farah, your thoughts, your questions. Hi, Adrian. Um, I've got two
two questions. The first is over the financing. Is isn't there already quite a lot of financing at a bilateral level? The EU, especially, I'd just be interested to hear from you about what's already existing in terms of helping the developing world. And the second question relates to what you said about um, how the Paris Agreement was the big outcome, is whether in a post-Paris Agreement world, maybe COPs should be meeting less often. I think they're annually, aren't they? Um, having got the Paris Agreement, maybe you only need every two or three years. I'm not sure if it makes uh, the, the climate change negotiations seem better, but I do reflect that the world trade uh, organization only really has managed one agreement multilateral in around 35 years and it's just been having a series of um, rounds since then none of which really have got to a conclusion so I think there's a bit of a lesson that right. any agreement that needs unanimity is quite difficult. Final thought Adrian? Yeah well I think there's a couple of interesting points you raised there David and the first one you're dead right. I mean, there, there are a colossal number of different opportunities for funding, different windows, international, bilateral, multilateral, and all those are actually referenced in that decision. It's a t- talking about funding arrangements, but this climate fund is set up very much in the context of all those other arrangements that are supposed to be taken into account. And we've no idea yet well, what exactly is it that this new fund is going to fund that cannot be funded under existing arrangements. That was part of the argument. Um, so Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a lot around. And I think in our own interest, say the, the Pacific Island countries, it's not easy for them to access these big UN-managed mm. funds. It's much better to do, if you've got some money, give them directly to the Pacific Islands in a bilateral arrangement. Um, your, your second point, should we have these um, annual COPs with 30-plus thousand people? Um, I agree with you. I think what has actually happened is that you've got the COP itself, which is a meeting of governments. That's what has to happen. But associated with with the COP, you've got a sort of a uh, a whole lot of separate climate conferences. You've got, I call it almost a climate jamboree, a climate trade fair, a climate festival. So there might well be a case for um, having having that massive climate uh, Woodstock, if you like, (laughs) separate from the cops. Um, you can still conduct the business. You're right, you could potentially move to a cop that's, um, that's every two years, and you still got you still have meetings in between time where you can take some decisions. So, yeah, I think that's right. quite... I um, do think we, we can't keep on with these massive... These massive uh, sorry. 30,000 people going with hopelessly inflated expectations. Kia ora, Dr Mason. We have to leave it there, but uh, it's so interesting. We'll have to get you back on on this. Dr Adrian Mason, the adjunct professor at the Climate Change Research at VEC, and he shared the Kyoto negotiations. So, yeah, uh, perhaps the end of a climate Woodstock. Um, not a bad thought indeed. 19 past four. Uh, just uh, recapping on some breaking news. Uh, the Black Ferns the Prime Minister has confirmed celebration event to mark the Black Ferns World Cup. Uh, there'll be an event on Tuesday, December 13 in Parliament. And also uh, the government will draft legislation to lower the voting age to 16 to see if it can secure the necessary 75% majority to make a law change. If it does get enough support, however, it would not be in place for the next election. Really big news there. Mm-hmm. And I know that Sue and David will have thoughts on whether or not to lower the age to 16 start yours coming right now 2101 but to this, this is fascinating many people have taken to kombucha a fermented tea, I'm not a fan 
Many are. Some seeing it as a good non-alcoholic alternative, but some kombucha sold as non-alcoholic in supermarkets have alcohol. The issue was raised in renews of the daily of the brand Daily Organics. They're not the only one, but anyway, three of their drinks had alcohol contents of 2.8%, that's the original, 3.0%, that's the lemon and ginger, and the chai spice and ginger, 3.2%. Now compare that with a good George Pale Ale beer, 2.5%, and a Crouch Lowrider, 2.5. Now, Daily Organics, they dispute the findings and challenged the consumer NZ results and that their testing of samples recorded was at 0.9% alcohol. Anyway, very interesting. With us is Dr. Nikki Jackson, Executive Director of Alcohol Health Watch. Kia ora, Dr. Jackson. As I said, not just them. You had a couple of years ago a good buzz samples recording between 1.2 and 1.5%. Nonetheless, worth raising. It's sold as non-alcoholic, but it's clearly not. Well, you're absolutely right, and this isn't just New Zealand. It's happening. Australia have found similar findings. Oh. And, you know, these products are pro- you know, they're marketed as, as healthy, non alternatives alternatives, but clearly they're not. So, you know, there's issues here for, you know, I drink a lot of kombucha wallace probably, you know, <laughs> litres a week. Um, what? It's, it's, my go- it's my go-to beverage every day. Um, and so, look, you know, if, as a kombucha drinker, you want to be aware, you, know, you have a right to know if there's alcohol in the product and the level of alcohol in there. But also, if you're, you know, someone that wants to limit your alcohol use and have alcohol-free days or cut down between drinks and have kombucha, then you need to know the levels. But, you know, our, our strongest concerns are, you know, people drinking these and then driving and being impaired, people who want to have alcohol-free pregnancies not realising there's alcohol involved, uh, people taking medications. Uh, there's, you know, young people who may be introduced early to the taste of alcohol, those with alcohol use disorders, this may, you know, be a trigger. So there are a lot of concerns here. Well, how about this, Nikki? Yeah, we we don't really buy it much, but when we do, my little uh, five-and-a-half-year-old, little Junes, he loves his kombucha. Then I read this. I'm thinking, yeah. good heavens above. Yeah, there, there might be a lot of parents inadvertently, you know, introducing this alcohol product. It, you know, it's not in the alcohol aisle of the supermarket. It's in the deli section of my supermarket, um, and it is marketed as this healthy product. I, you know, if these levels are accurate, then I think, you know, we need to see um, action taken in New Zealand. And we have labelling requirements for good reason, that products that contain alcohol need to be accurately labelled. And um, certainly the results from this testing is, is showing very high levels of, of alcohol. Let's go around the panel. David, you first on this. I can't work out why the government's leaving this to consumer, where it's been an issue twice now, and it seems that MPI has just accepted the producer's tests. I I just can't work out, and hopefully you might have some insight, why the government hasn't said, this is quite a serious issue, we're going to get our own independent tests done uh, to find out what they are. And perhaps related to that is it does seem there may be, according to some people, secondary fermentation. So testing is different at when you buy it to when it's produced. And I guess that is an interesting challenge about how do you hold people to account for testing at sale as opposed to testing at production. 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I don't know the level of funding that is dedicated to compliance and assessment um, and the regulatory options around this, these type of products. But I agree, I would like to see um, more, you know, random or, or, you know, some kind of strategy in place around assessing compliance. I, I did try to make my own kombucha, given I like it so much. And you're right, you know, the, the taste and the alcohol content varies with, with each batch and, and, you know, through bottling. So I agree, there need to be better standards in place. Sue? Well, Wallace, I can't get too excited about this, really. I mean, kombucha is a live culture, so each batch is a bit different. And, and it is true, if you brew it a bit long, it can result in having some alcohol. It's and not sure, sold and, in the alcohol yeah, section, come on. But it should be accurately labelled, and surely the industry will uh, respond to this uh, sort of outcry. But, you know, I mean, it's only less than 3% of our drinks market. I'd be even more concerned, or I think it'd be interesting to discuss why the number one soft drink in New Zealand, Coca-Cola, has 12 teaspoons of sugar in 500 millilitres of, uh, of its drink. You know, I mean, it's a very small market, and yes, it should be accurately labelled, but I can't get too excited about it. What you say to that, Nikki? Well, you know, I <laughs> I know it's a growing market. You know, there are more and more New Zealanders buying kombucha, so that, you know, that may continue. And, you know, we are talking about a drug here at the end of the day. Other products are, you know, labelled as, as such. We are talking about vulnerable groups, particularly New Zealanders, you know, dependents, wanting to stay sober, young people, pregnant persons. These, you know, these are risks. They're, they're not small risks. So, you know, I, I think that this is an important issue, and I think we need to see better compliance. Okay. So um, if it's labelled... Labeled as non-alcoholic, what should that mean? What's an, what's a, what's a good way to actually um, get onto this quite quickly? Because you don't want the, your dependents, those who really struggle with alcohol, all of a sudden having a two point five percenter, or a six-year-old who ha- has it as a perceived health tonic every so often, drinking a two point five percenter. Well, look, if, if they contain alcohol, and we define alcohol as 1.15 and above, then it needs to be in the alcohol aisle. Um, you know, clear there's disputes around the levels of alcohol in these products, but, you know, let, let's, um, you know, for the time being, at least precautionary approach, let's put these with the alcohol. If it's, a, if it's uh, inaccurately labelled, like, as you suggest, it's um, a breach of the Fair Trading Act, so it can be dealt to quite easily, I would have thought. And a possible solution might be, I'm not sure if the law will allow it, but for there to be a range there, if it really is every batch is different, maybe you need to recognise their uncertainty and say, this, depending on your batch, may be between 1% and 3% alcohol, so drink at your own you know, understanding of that risk. All right. What? Well, yeah, but that crosses over the threshold of what the definition of alcohol is. Mm. So if it's above 1.15, then it, then it needs to be... Um, you know, labelled as such. Okay. Nice to have you on the program, uh, Nikki That's Dr. Nikki Jackson there, the Executive Director of Alcohol uh, Health Watch. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, this is an outrage. I'm pregnant at the moment, and I thought I was making a good choice drink kombucha. Yeah. Uh, I, is that a mm. text from a reader? Yes. Okay, just checking, Wallace. 
<laughs> Thank I was you, David. Slightly confused. Hey, just you're clearing up the the, the the fine lines of society. That's you, David Ferrer, isn't it? Good on you, mate. Um, yeah, um, I'm taking anti-alcohol medication, and I got very unwell when I drank a kombucha. Anyway, 27 past four now. Neighbours at war after a serial 4 a.m. washing machine user in an apartment in the UK. Please stop, says a knight on the neighbour's door. Refrain from using the washing machine before. 7am. Inconsiderate or jolly good use of off-peak. And it's really divided people in the apartment complex. So I thought I'd go around the panel on this and thought, well, would this annoy annoy you, Sue Kishi, if the washing machine starts up at, what is it, 4am, um, what would your response be? Well, I, I mean, I think that a lot of it is revolves around this the fact of the high cost of energy and the fact that people are now uh, go, putting their stuff on at night because um, you get reduced rates. And so I have a great deal of sympathy for people. I presume the person has uh, put their washing machine on at night because that presumably they're getting sort of half rates. What do you reckon, David? Nonetheless, 4 a.m. Yeah, I think sleep is good to well-being as well, huh? Pretty unsocial. Like in New Zealand, you've got off-peak rates from 9 p.m. Yeah. to 7 a.m. Yeah, so they could so put it at 9. you do 5 to 6. I'm a bit surprised it's the washing machine. In my old flat, it was the dryer that could mm-hmm. absolutely yes. make yep. a racket. Um, look, you want to live in a nice community with your neighbours, subject to getting the off-peak rates. I think, you know, if you know it's disturbing them, you do it at the beginning or the end of the off-peak rates, not at 4pm. Okay, uh, just around the panel on this, is there, um, has there anything, has been anything that neighbours have done that you've been really, really annoyed by? I had a neighbour uh, many, many years ago now who always enjoyed mowing the lawns around about 8.30pm, you know, not too late, but really not early, just a little, I thought a little bit inappropriate, he thought it was a nice, cool part of the day. I can't actually recall any particular problems with neighbours. Actually, perhaps I've been lucky, but no, generally there's been, yeah, you know, there's probably the odd party, etc., but nothing beyond that. Well, leaf blowers get a bit yeah. irritating, but um, surely can't, the, can't this group get together and sort of have a bit of a meeting and sort things out amicably? As you say, put your, put your washing machine on at nine o'clock. That's really the way, isn't it? If you live in live anywhere, so if you live in an apartment complex, you know the best thing to do is bring it up at the meeting. Absolutely, I don't think it needs to be a huge, you know, discussion over social media. I think it could be sort of sorted out in a, in a local meeting. Fair and sensible here on the panel this afternoon with Sue Kishley and David uh, Farah. Nice one. Uh, now, uh, we are going to be talking about lowering the voting age, actually, uh, in about uh, five minutes' time, and already a really big response uh, to this. Um, uh, many for and actually many against. And probably worth noting that the last time we talked about this on the panel uh, about two months ago or 12 weeks ago, I did a panel poll uh, to whether or not you agree with lowering the voting age. And it was just an unscientific panel poll, hundreds of texts, and 55% of you on this program said no to lowering the voting age. 55% said no to lowering the voting age.